The Geneva Conventions and other measures have sought over the past century and a half to impose on war greater legality and restraint. While these laws of wars, the use in velo, have been increasingly codified over the past several decades, the constraints on waging war itself, the use ad bello, have not necessarily kept pace. If war fighting has been made more humane, has made, has that made it easier to make war, especially in the United States? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss these issues with Samuel Moyne, author of the recent book, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Samuel Moyne is Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and Professor of History at Yale University. He's written several books in his fields of international, uh, of European intellectual history and human rights history, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Christian Human Rights, and just before the current book, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. Over the years, he's also written in venues such as the Boston Review, Chronicle of Higher Education, Dissent, The Nation, The New Republic, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, Samuel Moyne. It's a privilege. Thanks for the invitation. Sure. Great to have you. So let's launch right into We're basically going to talk about the book today, the new book today. So Humane argues that making war less brutal may also make it easier for the United States to get into wars. And I think you also suggest that opposing brutality in war is a kind of distraction from the real problem. So the signature line here is we fight war crimes, but have forgotten the crime of war. But are these things necessarily mutually exclusive? Not at all. And, and that's why I wouldn't want to see the attempt to make war humane as a distraction. I just think it, it poses a risk. Uh, and I, I got interested in the topic because it's self-evidently a good thing to have less brutal war rather than more brutal war. And it's incredibly honorable that, you know, generations have struggled with, you know, relatively paltry success until recently to get that job done. But what I wanted to investigate, since it has become so vivid in our own recent American history, is this risk. And so my, my general view is that we can, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. It's just we haven't lately. We've humanized American war. And as it's been unleashed to become increasingly endless in time and unlimited in space. And it's, it's, it's not just window dressing because I think it's the moral project has changed the form of war. And so it's, the book is intended to be a call to control a risk, not to stop a, a, a noble project, but to recognize where, what, what, what kind of collateral damage it itself can cause to what ought to be our highest goal, peace. I see. I mean, it seems to me there's a certain continuity with the approach you take in Not Enough. That is, with the idea that, you know, there's something in a certain sense good going on 
but it may also be distracting us from something else that may be more important uh, in, in that case, uh, you know, to do with economic e- equality, that the focus on human rights was a distraction, if I can use that word, from, you know, a larger concern that seems in many ways to have been more important or at least perhaps neglected during the time of growing inequality in the United States and many other places in the world. I mean, I, I, I get, I get that it sounds parallel and it, it's certainly true that I'm holding out for something better in both mm-hmm. cases, but I, I personally would distinguish the book and, and characterize neither one in terms of distraction. The, the argument about human rights, including the very belated attempt to build in economic and social rights in the prior book you mentioned, not enough was in a sense easier on the human rights movements and, you know, the global legal frameworks that have been built, because in that case, the the suggestion is just that it's a minimalist and selective project that has survived as prestigious in a neoliberal age, precisely because it's just interested in building a floor of, of sufficient protection when it comes to the basic decencies of life, housing, food, and and so forth, while other forces uh, in the environment are obliterating any ceiling on inequality. And so it's it's really just a, a story of parallelism, not of complicity or even distraction. It's, it's calling on not the human rights movements to, to stop what they're doing or even change, but on the rest of us to understand that it's a minimalist partial project. In humane, the claim is, I think, harder because I think we have seen, especially in the presidency of Barack Obama, actual legitimation. And we should always remember that law and legal discourse isn't just about constraining or stopping, but also about legitimating and permitting And in this case, the laws of war in their new humane form have, in a sense, helped rationalize for a lot of people, and we can get into who those were, the continuation of war. And so in that case, I am arguing for a a lot more blame. And that's why I say there's like a risk in the laws of war in this new form which we ought to control better because the risk can actually have negative consequences, um, not just kind of fail to get everything done. We can imaginably, you know, want, want uh, our agendas to cover. Um, I mean, okay. I get that, you know, you're sort of reluctant to use the term distraction. And I hear that at the same time, I sort of wonder, I mean, it seems to me a lot of contemporary left politics are about, you know, whether one thing isn't a distraction from the other race, uh, you know, as a distraction from class, for example. And so <clears throat> so I'm thinking maybe about distractions. And one of the, um, you know, other perhaps distractions that came to mind as I read the book uh, was something that Mahmoud Maldani raised uh, during the Iraq War, and that was the you know, massive sort of preoccupation of American, uh, whatever, progressives um, with genocide or putative genocide in Darfur uh, at the same time that they're, you know, something that they could do, frankly, little about 
while their own government was, you know, per- engaged in a massive conflict in Iraq, where many, many Iraqis, if perhaps relatively few Americans, but many, many Iraqis were dying. Um, is, is that the kind of thing that um, we should also be worried about? So first a word about distraction and why I avoid it, um, because it seems to suggest a kind of causal argument that if we weren't doing one thing, we would do something else. And it's, it's just incredibly hard to establish that. Whereas in not enough, I'm, I'm actually trying to avoid that kind of claim by saying, look at just what human rights are trying to do relative to this other agenda namely more distributive equality that's neglected. That doesn't imply that we stop doing the one thing in order to do the other. It also doesn't imply that doing the one thing is keeping us from doing the other because we could just have higher ambitions. In this book, Humane, I avoid the the notion of distraction because I'm not even trying to prove that if we weren't paying attention to the laws of war, we would um, care more about peace because at any rate, you know, we, we, we don't want to stop trying to get war to be more humane. We want to do the other thing. The reason I said I'm harsher in this case is because it's clear that Barack Obama and others actually try to appeal to our, our, our power to validate their wars by by assuring us that they're humane. And so legitimation is different than distraction. And I and I think I show that um that legitimation happened, at least Barack Obama wanted it to happen, because otherwise why else would that be the central focus of his Nobel address or his uh drones address. Mm-hmm. Now on Mahmoud Mamdani, you know, who's a great scholar, um I hear that as a claim about hypocrisy um, in the first instance. And if that's what the claim is, I'm, I'm on board. It's not, I, I think there's some, a, there's a similarity um, and, and we can get into this because in, in my account, my kind of hero in the book, Leo Tolstoy definitely makes claims about the hypocrisy of audiences who trust in the humanity of their wars, even when, um, they're, they're kind of the wars themselves are doing so much damage, even when made more humane. Um, if Mamdani meant something stronger that, that the, 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 all those young people with the viral, you know, videos on YouTube and so forth who war saved our four bracelets were actually abetting American war making or distracting us from it, I think that's incredibly hard to establish, and he probably didn't. And so I, that's why I really just want to insist that we we get clear on what, what the claims are rather than kind of oversimplify them because in order to make them seem flimsier than they actually are. Got it. So, I mean, I think in general there's a kind of um – you know, desire in the book, reflected in the book, um, you know, that basically we live in a world without war or that we should think more about the world in those terms, right? 
So I wonder, you know, this is obviously a long-term dream of the human species that this kind of conflict could be eliminated, uh, one that, however, seems, you know, perpetually disappointed. So I wonder if you could sort of, you know, talk about how you see the hope of a world without war. Excellent question, John. You know, I, 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 the stance I try to stake out in the book is an, what I call an anti-war stance, which I distinguish from a pacifist one. And the main idea that of the anti-war stance is that most wars make the world worse. Um, and even if we, we, we expect otherwise in advance of at least some of them, it regularly turns out to be the case that they they set us back, and not just those who suffer their ravages, but those who wage them. And I I think there's an increasing American consensus in just recent uh, years that that has been true of uh, many aspects of the war on terror. Consider the politics around the Afghan withdrawal. I have a somewhat um, bolder view that I can't find a, an American war fought in my lifetime that was worth it. And so the book is written from the kind of perspective that we could imagine, you know, one or two or three or four fewer wars. I, I narrate in the book that it was astonishing that in modern times it could be credible to diminish the incidence of war and the idea that it could aside from at the end of days as in you know the promises of biblical prophets was new and it has about the same birth date as the whole idea that we could end chattel slavery or that we could end um, grinding poverty and what I try to narrate is like what what reformers did to try to make progress on this. Um, that's that's, you know, while you're right in your intro that I definitely pay most attention to the legal history of the use and bellow of making war more humane. Eventually, um, I try to give equal attention to the, the fortunes of of the use of bellum, which is which has reduced the incidence of international wars. I I try to point out the irony and paradox that um, the first and central cause for a long time was providing a European peace. And the, the irony and paradox was that America actually signed up to provide it at the end of World War II, but it came at the price of, you know, endless and repetitious global wars of the kind that America hadn't fought to, to that point. And so, you know, I'm, I'm interested in like, what, what could we imagine further constraints? And, you know, one, one central narrative is the, the abuse of the rules that are supposed to constrain force and keep wars from happening in recent decades and, and tell a story in which as a result of activism and public focus, those rules have gotten short shrift even as the rules that are supposed to constrain the fighting and make them more humane have gotten intense interest and been at the absolute center of public debate uh, insofar as there's been any around the war on terror. And so you don't have to be like a, a misty idealist to think that peace is, you know, 
worth striving for, not as an all or nothing, but as a matter of moving a little bit down the continuum, fighting one or two or three or four fewer wars that not only are grievous for civilians, but for soldiers themselves, the publics who fund them, the states that we set back as we did Afghanistan in a 20 year waste of time and, you know, loss of, of, of life. Um, and I think we can extend that to, you know, many other wars past and likely future, alas. Right. So, I mean, you said that, you know, there hadn't been a war in your lifetime or at least your adult lifetime that uh, had been worth fighting. And I, I, it leads me to ask something I also thought about when I was reading the book, namely, you know, to what extent um, are these wars that we've been getting into, uh, you know, misguided as a result of the fact that, Congress hasn't been really on board to do its job and to declare war and that basically wars are a matter of executive executives deciding to carry out, uh, you know, things that they think are a good idea, which might not be if, you know, Congress really were living up to its responsibility. You know, it's a it's a fantastic question. And, and I, I, I really think that it's it points to a very significant you know, front for, you know, action and thought. And I, I'm, I'm very much in favor of more attention to congressional abstention from, you know, war and peace. It's, you know, in its constitutional role and actually a lot of other matters. But I think we should recognize that there's, there's a little bit of kind of misdirection that Congress plays. It's, it's, First of all, it, it's passed expansive authorizations, and we can argue that the executive has done things beyond, you know, its remit. But the fact is that it, it, even if we want to say that, con- that the, the president has abused his authority or claimed Article II authority or whatever, the, the, in a way, the trouble is that Congress did authorize a lot. And, even if we think that the, you know, the president's been abusive, which is, is true, we should also acknowledge that Congress is read into these actions. It funds them through appropriation bills and it could easily turn off, you know, any war or war in general. Um, and so I think, you know, we should really think about the incentive structure that, you know, Congress, congressional representatives face um, and it's, it's really less about being involved in the war, which they want to avoid as so much as the appearance of it and, you know, shirking responsibility at that level, even while they get together for annual rituals of funding defense at increasingly higher levels. Amazingly, the two parties, which were at, at one another's throats in the midst of the first impeachment, like just took, took an hour to go vote through almost unanimously that that year's National Defense Authorization Act at, you know, incredibly high uh, levels of, of funding that we could do something else with. So I, I would, you know, it's not like I think Congress doesn't need attention. I would say, and I focus in the book much more on, let's say, militarist ideologies, beltway expertise, which I think at, at both before and after the end of the Cold War favored war and made it seem like it was doing worth doing much more often than turned out to be the case. And, 
that's why I'm heartened by developments both on left and right that are beginning to question kind of American militarism. And I would say Congress is, is congressional members are people too. And the trouble is that they've been part of, of a kind of intellectual syndrome as much as they've been part of a kind of political one. Right. Well, this is interesting because indeed the next question I wanted to ask was whether you think, uh, you know, Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan signals anything, you know, uh, important in the kind of direction that you are hoping things will go. I mean, you know, it's well known, I think, that he's been opposed to the Afghanistan involvement for a long time. And um, so in some ways, I suppose Trump, in a way, gave him an opening to do this. But and it was a bit of a mess. And, uh, you know, there's still people who are uh, there are many people now who are exposed to the, you know, the rigors, shall we say, of Taliban rule. So it's not ideal, but uh, neither were the 20 years that we spent there. Um, so I just, you know, what do you think this may portend for the future? I think we can see now that Biden was the third in a series of, of presidents who were elected as as anti-war candidates, uh, at least selectively. You know, Obama won first against Hillary Clinton as 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 someone who hadn't supported or at least at the beginning the Iraq war. And Donald Trump emerged against his fellow Republicans amazingly for denouncing the Iraq war, which was taboo at the time, and then won against Clinton again. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that he was an authentic anti-war voice, but I think especially amongst veterans, he uh, gained a lot of electoral uh, support from saying he was. And then Biden uh, came out against the forever war in in his campaign. And I think that's an that's an encouraging development. The trouble is all of the above running as 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 anti-war candidates have ended up endless war presidents. And, you know, it's too soon to tell with with Biden. But um, in a way, he just followed through on the trend for which I argue in the book, away from a heavy footprint interventionism towards a light and no footprint surveilling um, shadow war. Uh, and in his speeches defending the Afghan withdrawal, Biden promised uh, to keep that one going. Um, and so in, in some respects, he's purifying I think the incredibly frightening move that we've seen in the last 20 years, which is to um, respond to an originally brutal um, and uh, heavy footprint and visible form of the war on terror by slowly inventing a humane uh, and light, no footprint and less visible form of it. Um, and it is does it mean that, you know, it's better than the alternative? I, I think so, unless the alternative is not having that new form of it either. After all, what's been involved in it is is just an extraordinary assertion of American and executive power to assassinate, um, you know, in in space 
in lots of new places, practically anywhere and in time forever. And I think we would have rejected those extraordinary assertions um, in the past because it, it involves a power that no government should have in, in a world where great powers rise but inevitably fall and precedents are set. So now targeted killings have been normalized for the global future. And that's, you know, that's our bequest as Americans to world history. Uh, and uh, I, th- I think that's a, a great tragedy. It's not one that Biden is probably going to try to convert into a happier ending, I'm afraid. So this is where I thought the book was perhaps especially, you know, pessimistic. Um, I mean, it struck me as I read this line that <clears throat> maybe I, I compared, you know, this book a little bit to Not Enough. And it seemed to me that this had, if Marx was the patron saint of Not Enough, uh, Foucault, this has a more Foucauldian kind of sensibility. And, and I, you know, want to quote one line in which you say, um, today's deterritorialized and endless war may mutate into rule and surveillance by one or several powers across an astonishingly large arc of the world's surface, patrolled by armed drones or paid visits by the special forces, acting as quasi-permanent military police. I mean, is that, I think you've just said, this is kind of where you think we're headed. Can you say a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think we can be influenced by these great thinkers without being their slavish disciples. And again, I, I, I was making a modestly social democratic case in Not Enough. Social Democrats were influenced by Marx, uh, developed their own egalitarian you know, views and and. I think, you know, Marx's critique of human rights was much more pitiless than mine. In this case, obviously, it's deeply influenced by Michel Foucault. And I, I actually opened the book uh, with a, a, a tale of two weddings, which is supposed to mimic the opening pages so famous of Discipline and Punish, where he compares the dismemberment of 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 the of a regicide in France before the French Revolution, um, a, a brutal uh, dismemberment with the kind and gentle domination post-revolutionary prisons and worries that things might have gotten worse um, because now it's not the body that's in the crosshairs of the state, but the the soul as as one of Foucault's French predecessors Alexis de Tocqueville had originally warned. I think that's happening on a global scale. But you know the 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 jibe that so many have made against Foucault and that I share is that he he was a, a pessimist who hid any any normative defense of his ideals uh, or made them unspoken, and so. My my use of of Leo Tolstoy uh, is meant to kind of remedy that error and give us some some optimism. I, I do identify with with Foucault and Tolstoy, you know, domination, not necessarily violence, as the central evil in human affairs, um, and with a lot of others in the so-called Republican small R tradition, but by suggesting that, you know, while peace doesn't mean justice, 
more peace in our world, uh, at least great power peace could mean more global justice or head down that road, you know, in small steps of one less war, two less wars, three less wars. We, we really could imagine, uh, you know, developing a, a criticism of this new form of, of domination and control and surveillance that we've invented as the new form of, of counterterror. And so, I want to make use of these, you know, um, these these more ruthless critics, um, while while also trying to save a reform project from the the kind of radicalism of their critique for for us to be able to countenance and therefore give ourselves some some hope and optimism. Um, for how we could escape the syndromes that they were so brilliant and depicting. Well, I hope I didn't characterize you as a slavish follower of any of these people, but but I was struck by the kind of Foucauldian influence, and I was also intrigued by, in your answer by the fact that uh, I've always wondered whether anybody else noticed that Tocqueville had said this about, you know, governments getting in people's heads rather than right. at their bodies uh, right. you know, a long time ago. But in any case, uh, one, you know, perhaps last question, um, and that is, I guess, about the role of technology in all of this. I mean, mm-hmm. as you note, I mean, a lot of what's happening is a shift to technologies that, you know, there's a lot of debate among in military circles, ethical circles, uh, about, you know, how much freedom can machines be given to conduct our wars right. for us. And, you know, can certainly, certainly imagine if you're a soldier liking the idea of a robot, you know, being out there potentially taking uh, the bullet rather than yourself. Uh, but obviously this raises huge ethical questions. And I don't know whether you, you know, have as much to say about that as you might, you know, about the process of war in general. But it does seem to me that part of what's happening is that, you know, technologically warfare is changing and becoming, you know, more, even more, you know, dehumanized, quote unquote, than, than it's been. Um, so I wonder what you would say about that. You know, it's, it's a, it's a fantastic question. Um, you know, I, I try to make technology central to the narrative all the way back, um, by highlighting, um, the rise of air, air war, um, you know, long before drones were the preferred mechanism, um, and by, by looking at the, the tools of empire, uh, and of imperial war that were fought um, or earlier in the 20th century and, and back further um, because they uh, they deserve a central place in the story. I guess my, my general take is that, well, of course, technology is, is an, and technological change is an independent you know, force and we need accounts of that, which I don't try to provide. Um, I, I'm struck by how our technology is, is morally speaking us. Um, we, we ask us scientists and engineers for the kinds of tools, um, we, we would like for the kinds of wars we want to fight. And in earlier history, 
um, while there were some at the very dawn of the aircraft that thought that it, it would actually function to make war more humane and that this was a good thing. Um, obviously it's, it, it was used without compunction for the most brutal ends. Um, not long after that, um, the American state, um, asked for napalm and it was invented for the sake of making war more brutal, not less. I think after Vietnam, which I present as this kind of the central pivot, pivot in the history of American war in this regard, not just the, the kind of audience in public, but um, significant forces in the military began to want more humane war. And I don't think it, it's just the case that, you know, someone came up with drones um, as a, as part of the kind of linear history of just inventing things. Rather, there was an end, um, a moral end that was becoming more legitimate and, and changing the, the potential future of war. And, you know, one thing was invented and, and deployed rather than another. I think that really matters with the rise, which, which I closed the book with of, of so-called autonomous weapon system, which are algorithmic rather than piloted in the way that drones still are. And, and these, these robots are the future. And I think, you know, they're kind of like the aircraft. They could have many different um, potentials, but it, it seems as if we're already in a debate in which, you know, aside from the few abolitionists like me, when it comes to this tool, um, a lot of people want it, want the programming to be humane. Um, and indeed, we could imagine these robots as more humane than um, e- even, you know, even even drones have have become, at least when, you know, used, you know, per the rules. So. certainly technology has exempted Americans and great power soldiers in general from immunity from harm. But there's a limit when you're dropping a bomb from the sky as drones do, or even when you're visiting in person um, with special forces, as we've begun to do more and more, to how humane you can be to your targets. But we can imagine robots that are programmed to uh, take prisoners uh, to capture rather than kill. We can imagine robots programmed to be like police that invite surrender, which policing norms require rather than kill on site. Uh, and so um, I, I think that technology really matters, but it's, it's just an extension of our values and, um, I think we should study it in that way because that's, that's how it's, it's function in the transformation of war in our time, I believe. Well, these are fascinating issues that we're obviously going to be engaged with for, I think, as far as the eye can see when it comes to trying to make sense of war and how we're going to prosecute it insofar as we are, alas, engaged in it. But that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Samuel Moyne for sharing his insights about war and war fighting um, and uh, talking about his book, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. 
I want to thank Christo Voinov for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Mm-hmm.